And as I call in the east, I walk into the stream. And as I call in the south, I bring water to my mouth. And as I call in the west, the creek swallows my chest. And as I call in the north, I am swallowed by her source. Hello everyone and welcome to Rio Cosmico, a podcast about healing. The Rio Cosmico podcast is brought to you by Rio Cosmico Homestead, our seasonal ceremonial microvillage and library of earth magic. I'll be your host, Yaya Erin Rivera Merriman, and as always, gracias, hahom, goramayagat. Thank you for listening. This episode is part two of a two-part conversation with musician, father, and somatic therapist Luis Mojica. If you have not yet listened to part one, we recommend pressing pause and taking that in now. As this conversation begins deep in terrain, we meandered our way into in part one. I want to shift gears here and further connect the dots between where you have been, your music, and your current work in the healing arts. So my favorite line from your album, Anesthesia, that we've been speaking of has always been the one that goes, we came down from the stars, we worship only nature's laws, we worship freedom. I know I don't have your vocal range, but I think you know the one. So this idea of rejecting all that is not freedom, it's like a North Star if we're ever feeling confused or lost. A nice segue, I think, into your current offerings, because I can really see how you got from writing that line to studying as a somatic therapist and going on to help other people get free of maybe their traumas or their chemistry. So from my perspective, you've gone really deep to remember and reclaim and reweave yourself. And you now serve others seeking to heal from trauma as a somatic therapist. So I'd like to start from just hearing from you, like, you know, as a working professional, what's your definition of trauma? I just can't answer that yet until I say thank you, because you always amaze me how well you see me. It's incredible. I don't know if you're like that with everybody. But it's incredible how you can reference that one line and you can understand how that was like the seed of something I'm doing now. Like it's very touching. So thank you. Oh, goodness. Yeah. What I've come to understand from this work and this practice with, like you're saying, how do I define trauma or what's trauma is how not tied to event it is, which sounds strange, Mm -hmm. but how tied to response it is. And what's amazing about that is I've worked with so many people, as many therapists and and even researchers have, who have endured the same brutality. And one emerges traumatized or with like a psychosis Mm -hmm. and one doesn't. And it's been this ongoing kind of mystery. Why do some people get traumatized and others don't? Mm -hmm. Why can a child growing up in war not have PTSD, but a child who watched horror film at four have PTSD. We tried to make it event-based for so many years. And by doing so, we created these kind of containers of what happened to you wasn't bad, so you shouldn't be acting the way you're acting. It needs to be like this level to act the way you're acting, essentially. Mm -hmm. And what I love about somatic experiencing, which is the therapy I'm trained in, is just like you said, it's a reclaiming back to the body. And no one ever says this, but I really feel like it's just indigenous wisdom in a new way, a science language, 
maybe even like a post-colonial language so people can understand it in the modern era. But it's really bringing us back to land and to body, which is the same as we know. So when I see trauma, what I really see is a body that is still reverberating from an event. So the biology of the system of the body now is still responding to what happened 20, 30 years ago or 10 hours ago, you know, it depends, but it hasn't released or dissipated it yet. It's still echoing. So the biology of the trauma is the response hasn't quite turned off. It's still responding as if it's present. Thank you. It's good. Something clicked for me recently, just in my own kind of understanding of my own body and responses. I'm reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score with my partner. And we're kind of like read a chapter and then apply it to ourselves. And what came up for you or what did you resonate with or what surprised you? And I think it was in there that it was saying like, because we're just kind of flooded with this language of like, I'm triggered, you triggered me, trigger warning, you know, but maybe Mm -hmm. without the deeper understanding necessary to really benefit from conversing about this more socially. So there was some line that just kind of said, it's your body remembering something that happened to you. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. we're like, I'm so triggered by this and I don't know why. And just to say like, oh, why do I feel so unsafe right now? What did you say or do that made me feel unsafe? And just saying something, and it could be anything about the moment. Mm -hmm. That there's 50,000 things in the moment. I guess the Zen people say the 10,000 things. So we'll go with that. The 10,000 things, if there's even one thing in that moment that reminds you of something that happened that was really bad in the past, like your body could just fully believe that it's going to experience that thing again, like completely and that it is experiencing it again, not even notice that that's not what's going on to anyone else mm-hmm. there. That's your example there is great because that's why I'm saying it's a response based instead of event based. When it's event based, we're literally bypassing the soma for the event or for the actions or the person or situation. Like we're leaving our body to look at this thing that occurred and we're deciding is it just what should be done? We, and that's fine. I'm not saying not to do that what we leave out is like, what's my body feeling? And a trigger is just, it's a reminder. It's exactly what you're saying. The behavior and the action isn't the reminder, but what happens in the body is the reminder. Mm -hmm. And we have a term for that called overcoupling where the body sensationally has overcoupled what your partner might be bringing up for you with an actual threatening experience you've had in the past. They just feel the same. That's why the reaction is so big. I want to get more into that idea of being overcoupled in my next question. But, you know, there's, I like the way you're describing everything because I think we just barely touched on last time, but we did. We were invited to be a part of some very uncomfortable conversations in 2020 around race and racial trauma and holding space for racial trauma. And we're able to learn that as much as I consider myself like a shadow worker, and if I'm like, oh, it's in the shadow, let's pull it out and look at it, that I was like, oh, actually, there are some things that are so compounded and, and have gotten so impacted in there that I actually, like I learned my limitations as a space holder, that it's just, I'm a student of this. I'm not a facilitator mm. or a space holder of these conversations. And so that's something that a number of us have gone on to seek that training, not necessarily because we think we want to become anti-racist facilitators, but just because we want to be capable of holding space 
for whatever might be coming up for someone in a therapeutic space and especially intersectional community in a group healing space where you're inviting people to go there and saying, this is the space where it can like come up and out. We just don't know what is going to come up. And it's kind of unfair if you're saying like, hey, go there, we've got these crystal bowls and then you can't actually be in the same dialogue for whatever reason. So part of that decision was to kind of just give myself permission to really like stay true to myself and be as full spectrum as possible and say, I want to learn this language. Mm -hmm. I want to learn the vocabulary and the dynamics that are being named as important by Black women in particular. And I have my own language for these dynamics and my own understanding as a healer. So it's not everybody who's having this dialogue Some people are teachers and cooks and, you know, avowed activists as their main walk in life. So it's like we have different things we bring to the table. And so to say, like, I vow to stay true to myself as a healer and to take in this information and learn and grow my capacity to relate with people of all walks of life. And it's most valuable to me to look at these dynamics through the lens of mental health and the body and somatics, because there's just a different dialogue or articulation of what's going on that is kind of universal. It's like, this is what our animal bodies are doing. And I'm sure you've heard this idea of like the oppression Olympics. And it's just the way psychology talks about that term comes from like people who are doing undoing racism work more, but from psychology has the same term, which is in the Enneagrams. So like Enneagram four, one of the challenges is I am the greatest sufferer. And so this is, we're talking about the same thing. When you get into those kind of relationships where like someone says they had a bad day and then like all of a sudden you were doing great, but you can't help but tell them about the bad thing that happened to you. Mm. And then it just goes into this feeling of almost competing for who's doing worse. And so just the way that there's different labels for these things, depending on what lens you're looking for. And I'm not even saying one's better or worse, or even right for me and not right for me. I'm just saying it's super important for me to remain centered in that position that says there are many different lenses. These things can be viewed through. And what is the goal? You know, and for me, the goal with the kind of work that I do is I want to heal this. I want to find things that unwind trauma permanently from the nervous system. And that's the excitement. That's the promise, as I understand it, of somatic therapy. So that's what excites me about it is like one of a very few things that promises to have the goods on something that the rest of us are all like really questing. Like, how do we actually complete this part of our human experience and move on? So much you said that I need to respond to because it's really important. I want to start with the last thing. In my experience, there's a common misconception around the promise. So the promise of removing all my trauma from my body, that's a promise I don't believe in. The promise of creating a relationship with the trauma and uncoupling fear from pain and uncoupling fear from self-connection, that's the piece that really lights me up. Because the thing that's interesting about trauma is, again, we understandably get trauma so overcoupled with injustice and abuse. We kind of like tie them together. If we take away the event again and we go to the body, what we're really talking about is the nervous system getting flooded with so much information about survival that it shuts down. It can't function anymore, right? 
And that can literally happen from watching a movie that scared you and then having insomnia for 10 years as a four-year-old. I mean, it can be something so seemingly innocent, not tied to abuse, or it can be tied to extreme injustice and oppression and abuse. I say this because when we take away the events of trauma and we look at it as a nature and we look at it in nature and through the body, we see it as inherent to life these like overwhelming life force experiences. That's mm. what trauma is. Oh. It's life force flooding. It's like God is flooding through our tiny bodies to help us survive something. And our bodies aren't built for that much life force. So it breaks us down. And when I see it that way, trauma becomes like a deity to me. It becomes like a sacred being that I get to connect to in my body and help my body learn how to let it move through me rather than banishing it, ignoring it, or compounding it. That's how I like an animistically reframe the way we hold trauma and witness it. This is just the best, Luis. That was so <laughs> good. You know, when you're saying it becomes almost like a deity, it is when I am very triggered, I have a lot of verbal tools that I have taken on as a way to, to learn, to feel safe, to just like meet the unknown and the time that hopefully you will never see, hopefully no one listening will ever see, but if anyone's ever see me get like fully triggered, like full on, like all the tools are out the window, overwhelm, karmic shit show. It's going to be when I have used my tools, I have stated my boundaries and they are ignored. So if something crosses my boundaries where I haven't had an opportunity to explicitly name them, I just say that's like the luck of the draw in life. I will not hold someone accountable for crossing a boundary that I didn't explicitly name. Mm. But when I have named it and the energy just keeps coming at me as I feel experience it anyway, and that when I go into full panic, it's when I, I remember times where my boundaries are overwhelmed in the past. So any boundary overwhelm in this moment my biggest trigger is just having my boundaries overwhelmed. So it'll That's take right. me to all of the, and glue together all of the worst moments of having my boundaries overwhelmed and that feeling of like just being flooded and not being sure if I'm going to be able to keep the not me out and the me in. And in those moments, that's when I really meet Kali. I have done years of traditional Kali sadhana to try to honor that this is the name, like one of the oldest unbroken lineages name for all that is for acceptance, unconditional acceptance, unconditional love. But she scared me, you know, <laughs> she's got a sword and fangs. Um, yeah, yeah. And you now those are the moments where I feel her in my body and I feel what it's like to basically not be able to be violated because, you know, even if we are being violated in some way, we disassociate. So we go somewhere else with the part of ourselves that is inviolate. And she's the one who kind of does that like chemically. So it basically is just everybody out, everything stop, everybody out. And I'm going into my cave with my inner child right now. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to bring my nervous system back into a healthy place. So mm -hmm. I just love that you, I've never heard anybody say that before, just like to not view trauma as like the boogeyman or like this thing mm -hmm. that is, what do we do? We're just like so riddled with trauma. Is it just over for us? Are we just fucked, yes. you know, to That's say trauma is part of, of life 
it really resonated with me as like, right, these are energies in that sea of consciousness and all the different energies and Kundalini is just the strongest one we have a name for, but there's all these other energies. So it's like, okay, right. It's just one of those. Just like what you've said about violation. I mean, that it's like, that's the beauty of trauma. We're here because of trauma response, like all of us as a species. So there is a powerful, like when you say Kali and like the force of all, that is moving through our nervous systems. Every creature on this planet has a trauma response where when the body assesses violation or threat or possible threat, and that's where a lot of overcouplings come in, immobilizes. We don't mobilize, the body mobilizes. So when you say like cosmic shit show or karmic shit show, it's like, <laughs> that's literally happening. Like what we call possession, you know, yeah. the body is being taken over and we're yeah. not in control, but that's why your conversation about racism and holding spaces for healing and, and unpacking that. I don't know how anyone can truly unpack racism. If it's not through a somatic trauma informed lens, if it's through a political lens, like forget it, you're going to have a group of people with light skin fawning, and they're all going to be saying what everyone wants them to say so they don't look like a racist and no one's going to be actually learning or shifting. So let's break that down a little bit. Can you give it your definition of the fawn response? Because, you know, I grew up with this understanding the HP axis, fight or flight response, then it's fight, flight or freeze. Oh, freeze <laughs> is me. And they never mentioned that one. And fawn is sort of like new to the collective dialogue as yes, like part is. of that. Fawn is... I find the most important one to talk about. It was the one that I worked from for many years and it's the appeasement response. And what makes it so unique from the other three, the other three are not socially engaging. Mm -hmm. The other three are very much about like physiology, right? One's running, one's freezing and shutting off, one's fighting and pushing away. So it's, it's physical movement, right? Fawning is so unique because it's socially engaging. Mm -hmm. So we're reflexively engaging with someone to mollify and appease them. And it's ex extremely brilliant response because if there is someone who's possibly holding the keys to your life, whether it's financial, whether it's your actual physical life, material, your children, whatever it is, and you, your body realizes, oh, if I do this thing, or I say this, or I wear this, whatever it is that I do to appease that person, it keeps them from hurting me. It keeps my life intact. Yeah. So brilliant. And so the fawn mechanism is super important with what you're talking about. Any kind of like unpacking within communities, especially polarized communities, same with Republican Democrat, like any kind of polarizing communities. So important because what happens is if we're not aware of the fawn mechanism and trauma response, what we call healing and what we call like honest conversation is really someone just reflexively agreeing or saying what they think the other side wants to hear so they can be connected so they don't lose secure attachment. So what that looks like is like 2020 brings racism into a lot of people's faces and minds who weren't thinking about it, who didn't think it still existed, who weren't affected by it. And it created this desire to be on like the right side of history. Now, the desire to be on the right side of something is already bypassing where you are. So and it's innocent. But when we add the fawning mechanism there, if someone's looking at me as like appearing white cisgendered guy, which is how I appear in the world until people learn who I am, where I come from, their bodies are reminded of all the people who looked like me. 
And that is intergenerational. If it's a brown skinned person, if it's a black skinned person, if it's anyone who is opposite of like the white male, let's say even women, there's a reminder in their body of like, oh, a white guy with a beard and what that means. So their bodies, not them, but their bodies have already decided I could be a threat. And if I say the wrong thing, which essentially just means what isn't safe to be said or what they don't want to hear, it's going to say, yes, he's a threat. Now, because I do this work, like I'm aware of that. So if I'm in a space with somebody and they get really triggered by me, I don't reflexively fawn because I understand they're triggered. And I understand I represent centuries of pain for them. So Mm -hmm. the humility of knowing like my body brings that is the Mm -hmm. first piece somatically. And then the piece of like, and because I grow up in this world that sees me that way, I haven't been affected the same way. Mm -hmm. I can relate through things I went through, but I haven't been affected the same way. So there is an ignorance and a humility of that. But that's different than saying, I'm a bad person because I have light skin. I must fawn. That's a certain way people are trying to work with racism. And again, it's a trauma response. I want to move from appeasement into relating, which is like, I'm going to go to the place that feels uncomfortable in me. And like you said, build capacity. So that discomfort that comes up in response to what you're saying or how you see me has room to spread and dilute, not propel me into freezing or falling. Thank you just for for breaking that down. Like having names for these things is so helpful because like then I see them versus just being like, oh, what is this whole constellation of feelings and like responses? And it's so complicated. It's like, nah, maybe (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Take me this idea of like this like articulation i 
hadn't been online a lot for a long time. And, you know, I, I actually try not to follow people that I know personally online because it's just not real life. I already have access to the real thing. Why would I want something? I mean, a lot of people are working when they're online, you know, I don't, it's like, I don't want to hang out with you at work, but I did like go over to your page in preparation for this. And I was really just... I think maybe I said this last time and I never want this to come out the wrong way because it can sound condescending and it doesn't feel that way. It's just honest words. Like I was so proud. It's like, oh my <laughs> God, you have gone through some real evolutionary leaps in the clarity with which you're like sharing your vibe and your offerings. So I'm really loving the educational and encouraging nature of the post on Instagram. Mm, For me, they're representing an incredible amount of inner work, mapping the subtleties of your own emotional landscape to be able to articulate such complex emotional dynamics so concisely. And I'd love to hear you elaborate on a couple of ideas from your posts for your listeners. I just picked two. And, you know, of course, psychically, you already started to go the first one. So we'll just, um, you know, continue that. You had a, a slide that said, you're not overreacting. You're actually overcoupled. Break that down for us. <laughs> That's my favorite discovery in my own body. So again, your example was like perfect. Or you're talking, you know, how you said you go into like that triggered place. So overcoupled, we want to understand about that is overcouplings are everywhere. Some are like really magical and beautiful and helpful and healing. Like the smell of rose, right? Can remind you of someone or some place that's really sacred or safe. That's an overcoupling. My body associates this with that. A traumatic overcoupling would be my body associates this, whether it's smell, the way someone looks, the way something feels in you with a threat, right? Based on past experience. So it's nothing that hasn't happened to you. It's something that has happened to you or your ancestors and it's in your body. And so what we call overreactive is really all this information from a lifetime and maybe even before is stuck in my little nervous system in response to something that isn't as affected. So let me think of an easier way to say that. Someone cuts me off as I'm speaking, like they interrupt me. And the feeling in my stomach, let's say, feels like a little fist, like there's a pressure happening in there. Now that pressure, what's so far out about sensation, is sensation has a lineage to it. And the moment you feel that, that pressure in the stomach, it connects to every event that hasn't been released that created a, a pressure in your stomach, right? Mm. It's like a literal story to the sensation. And this is why intergenerational trauma is so important. I'm starting to believe more and more what we call past lives is actually ancestral trauma, like working mm. through our body still. The jury's out you know, or not in, maybe, I don't know, actually know, but it feels right in my body when I think of that. Either way, ancestral trauma is so important because that feeling in my stomach might even connect to something I inherited that I haven't experienced in my lifetime, but maybe my father or my abuelo did, right? And I ended up learning that that was true with the sugarcane plantations in Puerto Rico. So it's interesting when you start looking at ancestry, just a little side, how it shows up in your physical body when you haven't experienced those same traumas still because they're inherited, they're passed down. So this all has to do with overcoupling because what was inherited and passed down and what I experienced and was yet to release, right, or transform lives, let's say, in my stomach. And my best friend cuts me off and I'm really excited about something and ooh, it feels like a punch to my gut. Even the terms feels like a punch to my gut. Him cutting me off is innocent, maybe annoying at the worst, but it's not a threat to my survival. 
but try telling my stomach that because that sensation reminds it of times that it was actually threatened or almost threatened. And in that moment, I am somatically overcoupled. I don't consciously know any of this is going on. It's happening in like a nanosecond, but my body's propelled into a trauma response from a memory sensationally of something that's associated with this event that's not actually threatening. So I'm going to pause there and you tell me what you're getting. I'm getting, I mean, just the language of a sensation has a lineage. Woo. That's yeah. So that's an example of what I'm talking about is like, you just are really good at distilling these things. So then I have a better sense of why I have responded the way that I have in certain situations where maybe 30 people were all talking at once or yelling at once, or there's a, you know, it happens to probably all of us. If you work in an organization or something, you take a work a day off of work or you're out sick and you come back to catch up and you have 50 email thread. So those 50 emails maybe happened over 48 hours or a week or two weeks or a month, but you're reading them all at once. And then this like, why do I feel like I'm being devoured by the mouth of hell right now? You know, <laughs> That's such a good analogy because... I mean, that's literally what's happening biologically. Like in that moment, that one person cuts me off innocently and it feels like 50 people have slapped me yeah. or I've been ousted from my community. Like it takes my body to that level of extremes. So I'm in this new place with spring, like something just shifted that I just didn't, I didn't know how it was going to ever shift, but then it just did. That's why I'm so obsessed and in love with the spirit of the seasons, because sometimes it just does the work for us or some of the work. But I'm in this place of just, I haven't even tried to articulate it to anyone yet, but feeling like I'm becoming ready to just let it go with some sort of stuff that happened, that things people said, things people did that were just incomprehensible or so hurtful to me in a time when every single person in the world was facing imminent death. But I'm in a place to say, anybody who really meant anything that they said during that time, please let me know and we can have tea and talk about it now because my general sense is that it was a mass possession moment where everyone lashed out at everyone. And I'm just like, I think my body is sort of ready to say, oh, well, want to have coffee, you know, or whatever. I don't drink coffee, but like whatever people do <laughs> to just like casually connect. And then, you know, there's other people I know who are like, cannot comprehend that. I'm like, but that person did this or that to you. And I'm like, did they, was it even them? Like, was there anything in there that I can take away and take responsibility for and say, yeah, I could improve there. And I can work on that on my own, but I don't know, just a sense of I'm enjoying having this conversation with you right now. And I hope wherever it lands, whenever it actually comes out is also the right time for being like, are we ready to look the collective trauma that we all just went through yet? Mm. Or like, is mm. it too soon? Because I know when I taught in the Brooklyn high school and it was very violent and there was a lot of trauma that I just had to deal with every day. When I left that position, I put everything in a box and I couldn't open that box for like 10 years. I couldn't open the box. Yeah. I'm just curious, but I hope that I know this finds people when they're ready to open the box. And well, you're intuitively speaking to something that I find important, which is again, like the seasonal relationship to the body. And I think the place I'm always looking at as a somatic therapist in the body is constriction and expansion. It's kind of like, we're always moving between those two. 
And if we think of like the heartbeat or think of the tides of the ocean, or we think of uh, contractions during childbirth, there's a constant constriction and openness and an opening. And when that's in a state of flow, like if we think of the nervous system, we are experiencing vitality. Like that life force we were talking about earlier that can be traumatizing is moving and coursing through us and nourishing us. When we stay just constricted or we stay just expansive, we move into these other polarities. Just expansive would be like manic, right? And just constricted would be depressed, shut down. So when you're talking about the seasons and you're saying you're having this newfound, what I'm hearing is this newfound capacity with spring. What's really magical is spring is when we start expanding again. The earth mm -hmm. goes into an expansion from a contraction. So even like when we're talking about these conversations around justice and healing collective cultural racial trauma, it's we have to also take even the seasons in. I have an amazing, amazing woman on my team named Camille Leek, and she does diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but she does it through the lens of trauma and somatics. And one thing she always says is these things don't get sorted out with a few conversations. It takes time. And one reason for that is if we think of the seasons and we think of our bodies, we need time to be expanded enough to even have the capacity, like you're saying, to sit down and have tea and listen to what people think about you. That takes capacity. And that's regardless of your desire. Desire and capacity are not the same thing. So we can really want to heal and like love and, and have people feel good about us. But if we don't have the capacity to, it's just not going to happen. So I love that you're feeling that now because that, that makes sense to me. Oh, I'm laughing because that was the second one of all the little slides you have and all the wonderful quotes. That was the second one that I chose to hear you unpack is sometimes my wants and desires are way beyond my capacity. And when I read that, I was like polyamory in a nutshell. I spent five years at the end of my marriage, just looking at like how we could think differently about relating and getting our needs met. And it wasn't something like polyamory wasn't something that I was ever drawn to before it became a seemingly appropriate strategy for growing apart and having a child. And just how can we gain the tools to be ethical and communicate around things that people don't necessarily want to or think that we can. And so I really enjoyed the still, and I really enjoyed like workshops and play shops and things that were like, well, here's these tools and now we're all going to practice with them. And then you go home and practice it with your partner that month or whatever. But the relationship was sort of sufficiently, we were sufficiently separated, you know, and kind of really like, okay, we're actually moving in that direction. So I was essentially a free woman and I was like, okay, I have all these skills and this seems so fun. It actually seemed to me like a really great answer to scarcity. Just, mm. you know, like we can't, necessarily all grow our own food or start our own farms for a hundred thousand dollars, but maybe somebody who already started a farm with a grant that has a sort of monogamous dyad that's looking to open up. It's like, oh, maybe I can like come in with communication skills, which you guys haven't been studying while well, you've been studying permaculture stuff. And we can exponentially advance in our journey toward like this vision of what we think, I don't know, close to the earth, life sharing, need meeting, all of it. Mm -hmm. And it was messy. It was so painful, you know? <laughs> and it was because we had all the talk and all the tools and all the like, oh, we can have some cacao to help us when it gets gnarly. And then it just didn't, mm -hmm. nobody in our little exploring explorations had a somatic background. 
<laughs> and so when we're very deep in something that people are reinvested in, and then one person has a complete freak out and crashes her car, she's so overwhelmed and stressed and is like, I can't do this. I'm mm. a mother and I have other dreams for my life and I can't live with this level of nervous system overstimulation. It was like, oh, gosh, can, can anybody do it then? Because mm. we're all pretty skillful and we still have all these traumas and we have all these tools, but we still don't have the ones to overcome something so basic as just being like my inner child got scared mm -hmm. this one time because just we didn't negotiate that one thing, even though we negotiated 50 other things or whatever. So, you know, I'm not in that exploration currently. I just I'm taking a break and I'm, I'm in a different <laughs> configuration, <laughs> but that line just was like, oh my God, could someone put that everywhere? Because it explains an awful oh. lot of what we're experiencing once we get below the surface in community. I love everything you said. It's so timely, of course. Last week, Eamon and our daughter Lyra and I went to stay with a friend in Vermont. And our friend is polyamorous. And I was talking with her because for all my life, I, I always identified as polyamorous. So I'm just like, I'm polyamorous. Like there's no question about it. And then the more I was speaking with her <laughs> and other people over the years, I started realizing I'm actually not polyamorous. There isn't a word for what it is. I don't think the closest is like free love in the sixties mm -hmm. where it wasn't about relationship. It was just about experiences. Like mm. that's me. Yeah. But <laughs> the idea of navigating multiple hierarchies of relationships sounds so colonial to me and exhausting and so regimenting how I can relate. So I don't hurt someone's feelings. It's just, mm -hmm. for me, it's too much work. And exactly why what you're saying. I think of that Walt Whitman quote of, so I contradict myself. I am made of many multitudes. That's where it is. We're all made of so many multitudes, yet multitudes aren't physiological. They're mm -hmm. ethereal. They mm -hmm. come from the mind and the spirit. So when we're talking about capacity and desire, desire is attached to the ether. It's, it's non-physical. It's expansive. It's the universe itself. And then capacity is attached to these little tiny bodies we have compared to this universe we're in. How much capacity do I have for my own desires? That has been like a huge contemplation and self-inquiry for me, a somatic self-inquiry, noticing the difference between what I'm desiring and how my body is actually responding to the situation, huge. And as we start to learn that, we start to notice, oh, my desires, there's nothing wrong with them. But I just get, or and I just get to see if my system doesn't have capacity for it, this desire, no matter how beautiful or aligned I am with it, it's going to put me into overwhelm. It's going to traumatize me. And then I'm going to quote self-sabotage, mm. which is really just a smart way the body pauses something overwhelming. <laughs> and we feel oh, a lot of shame I about love it. That. That's really wonderful because that's not a term I ever really grabbed onto for myself or for other people. But there have been some times recently where I've been like, is this self-sabotage? Actually, it was like in this journey of saying, oh, I'm really excited about somatics as a potentially very timely tool for where I'm at in my own healing journey. And then I found somebody to work with. I was just like, really, everything was feeling yes, 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 the person and everything, all the words they were saying. And we agreed that we were going to go for, you know, a number of sessions. We're going to really give this a try before we like judge it. And then <laughs> yeah. it was like two sessions in 
And I could not believe the way that I was feeling and acting. It was like, if you're as triggered as you can possibly be about something that's not happening at all, Mm -hmm. not letting up for weeks on end, I just felt like a little girl and I felt like a hypocrite and Mm -hmm. whatever, but it took me so much just processing to say, I'm allowed to change my mind. Mm. I don't know Mm -hmm. this person. This is a new modality and a new practitioner. And to not trust the modality and not trust the practitioner and being going straight for these maximum trauma places or Mm. maximum release potentials right off the bat after having one marriage and family therapist for nine years, you know, and just having so much trust. I was just like, I don't like how this is making me feel. I feel like I have a really serious problem and I was just trying to find something that would like support me, even understanding invitation of the approach, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, the permission uh, no, of that it, is really important to me. That's an important example because so many people are judging their spiritual growth and their karma and all these things on a situation like that when it's so innocently tied to capacity and these situations teach us oh okay my first step actually has to be capacity building not going into the trauma i might have to spend months just building capacity and a lifestyle that supports capacity before i even like edge toward it (laughs) i think you just named actually what a lot of people have intuitively done in response to the last couple years is like, Mm -hmm. I know it looks like I'm running away or using my privilege to hide, but actually I dug really deep and found that I can't show up the way I want to show up unless I have healed my underlying thing, my alcoholism, my eating disorder, my insomnia, Mm -hmm. my severe premenstrual, whatever, because you know that you can't really go on a journey with anyone or dig into anything without it being hijacked by your lack of capacity. That's exactly right. And that's why this situation you're talking about in this case, like you were talking about racism or any kind of any kind of collective trauma that we're holding, it appears to the world that someone is centering themselves or they're being selfish or that, like you said, using privilege. And again, if we think about it somatically, they should be centering themselves. Otherwise, they're going to be dissociated and fawning and not actually related or learning anything with the other side that's going through hell. And so to me, these are generational changes. They don't happen in like a year at the end of nine months. They happen at the end of our lives. It's going to be passed down to the next generation. It's going to take several generations to really like dilute this collective trauma. So exactly what you said, retreating for capacity building is very different from retreating to numb. I'm not judging either, by the way, because they both showing us our capacity. When we're retreating to numb, we're not building capacity. So when we go right back to the fire, it's going to throw us right back to the numb. But if we're retreating to build capacity, that is like a really powerful, admirable thing to do if you want to work with collective trauma and grief. Well, thank you so much for just you know sharing the somatic body-based perspective on some of the things that we're all navigating. I feel hopeful. We do have to start wrapping up this segment for today. So where can folks who are interested in going deeper with you go to connect with your offerings? I would suggest my website, which is holisticlifenavigation.com or Instagram, which is holisticlifenavigation. That's what I call the kind of therapy I do. Everything they need to know is there. Thank you so much. And just a formal thank you to all the benevolent beings in all the realms who have gathered here today to inspire and direct the flow of this ritual of communication. 
We dedicate any merits accumulated through this work to the benefit of all sentient beings. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be well. May all beings know joy and do not suffer. Jai Ma. Amen. Namaste. Blessed be Aho. May it be finished in beauty. Go to Mayagat. Ha home. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. If you're enjoying this conversation, we invite you to head over to your feed on Patreon, where we've posted a little bonus as a thank you for supporting the school and the podcast. I'm speaking with Luis about a question we get asked a lot, how to tell the difference between being intuitively guided towards or away from something, or being ruled by our triggers and patterns of avoidance. If you're not yet a member of our Library of Earth Magic, you can click the library link in our show notes today to explore all the benefits that come with your membership. If you decide to join us, you'll receive instant access to original medicinal treats recipes, bonus episodes with our podcast guests, recordings of past workshops, patrons-only merchandise, and seasonal live online Green Magic Fellowship Circles, where you can connect with our international community of heart-centered earth tenders walking this good green road. As always, thank you for listening. It's a pleasure getting well with you. Up to the long corn river Yeah.